Thank you for taking time to listen to our Good Friday service. In this recording, we have included extended scripture passages being read, as they were a significant part of our worship together. A short homily is offered toward the end of this service by our own Pastor Val. We pray that the Lord blesses you and reminds you of his sacrifice as you worship with us in this way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted you and you delivered them. To you they cried out and they were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. My, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of of Israel, for he is not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. 
all who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. I'll be reading from Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. See, my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. And he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence. For they will see what they had not been told. They will understand what they had not heard about. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence, like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet, it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep in silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteousness servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. Let us pray. Father God, the cross 
your son came to with such endeavor as he experienced that. He put as much into that as he put as much into his living life. Faithful and full of good courage. Father, as we come before you tonight, may we remember, may we feel, and may we sense the agony that our Lord felt that night for our own sins. And Lord, may we give that over to you as we give ourselves to you tonight. In your name we pray, amen. This comes from John 18. After saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered a grove of olive trees. Judas, the betrayer, knew this place because Jesus had often gone there with the disciples. The leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards to accompany him. Now with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him. So he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for? he asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. As Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Once more he asked them, who are you looking for? And again they replied, Jesus the Nazarene. I told you that I am he, Jesus said, and since I am the one you want, let these others go. He did this to fulfill his own statement. I did not lose a single one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter drew his sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? So the soldiers, their commanding officer, and the temple guards arrested Jesus and tied him up. For they took him to Annas, since he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest at that time. Caiaphas was the one who had told the other Jewish leaders, it's better that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, as he did another of the disciples. That other, that other disciple was acquainted with the high priest, so he was allowed to enter the high priest's courtyard with Jesus. Peter had to stay outside the gate. Then the disciple who knew the high priest spoke to the woman watching at the gate, and she let Peter in. The woman asked Peter, You're not one of the man's disciples, are you? No, he said, I am not. Because it was cold, the household servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire. They stood around it, warming themselves, and Peter stood with them, warming himself. Inside, the high priest began asking Jesus about his followers and what he had been teaching them. Jesus replied, Everyone knows what I teach. I have preached regularly in the synagogues and the temple where the people gather. I have not spoken in secret. Why are you asking me this question? Ask those who hear me. They know what I said. Then one of the temple guards standing nearby slapped Jesus across the face. Is that the way to answer the high priest? He demanded. Jesus replied, If I said anything wrong, you must prove it. But if I'm speaking the truth, why are you beating me? Then Annas bound Jesus and sent him to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, as Simon Peter was standing by the fire, warming himself, they asked him again, You're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, No, I'm not. But one of the household slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man who Peter, whose Peter ear had cut off, didn't I see, said, Didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? 
Again, Peter denied it, and immediately a rooster crowed. Jesus' trial before Caiaphas ended in the early hours of the morning. Then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor. His accusers didn't go inside because it would defile them, and they wouldn't be allowed to celebrate the Passover. So Pilate, the governor, went out to them and asked, What is your charge against this man? We wouldn't have handed him over to you if he weren't a criminal, they retorted. Then take him away and judge him by your own law, Pilate told them. Only the Romans are permitted to execute someone, the Jewish leaders replied. This fulfilled Jesus' prediction about the way he would die. Then Pilate went back into his headquarters and called for Jesus to be brought to him. Are you the king of the Jews? he asked him. Jesus replied, Is this your own question, or did others tell you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate retorted. Your own people and their leading priests brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate said, So you are a king. Jesus responded, You say I'm a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize what I say is true. What is truth? Pilate asked. Then he went out again to the people and told them, He is not guilty of any crime, but you have a custom of asking me to release one prisoner each year at Passover. Would you like me to release this king of the Jews? But they shouted back, No, not this man. We want Barabbas. Barabbas was a revolutionary. Then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put a purple robe on him. Hail, king of the Jews, they mocked as they slapped him across the face. Pilate went outside again and said to the people, I am going to bring him out to you now, but understand clearly that I find him not guilty. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said, Look, here is the man. When they saw him, the leading priests and temple guards began shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. Take him yourselves and crucify him, Pilate said. I find him not guilty. The Jewish leaders replied, By our law he ought to die because he called himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was more frightened than ever. He took Jesus back to the headquarters again and asked him, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Why don't you talk to me? Pilate demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or crucify you? Then Jesus said, You would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. So the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Then Pilate tried to release him, but the Jewish leaders shouted, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. When they said this, Pilate brought Jesus out to them again. Then Pilate sat down in the judgment seat on the platform that is called the stone pavement. It was now about, on, about noon on the day of preparation for the Passover. And Pilate said to the people, Look, here is your king. Away with him, they yelled. Away with him. Crucify him. What? Crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the lead priest shouted back. Then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus away. Carrying the cross by himself, he went to the place called Place of the Skull, in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they nailed him to the cross. Two others were crucified with him, one on either side with Jesus between them. And Pilate posted a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, so that many people could read it. 
Then the leading priest objected and said to Pilate, Change it from the king of the Jews to, he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, No, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, Rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dice for it. This fulfilled the scripture that says, They divided my garments among themselves and threw dice for my clothing. So that is what they did. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, Here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Will you pray with me? Father, this evening we approach you with contemplative hearts reflecting and remembering your sacrifice, your story, your journey to the cross. Lord, be with us in these moments. Would you speak through these words um, to us? Open our hearts and open our minds, I pray in your name. Amen. It seems strange that we call this day Good Friday, doesn't it? Have you ever wondered why it's called good? What is so good about a man being ridiculed and beaten and bruised? What is so good about a man hanging from a cross? What is so good about a man being killed? I don't think I'll really answer those questions for us tonight, uh, not in any length anyway, but tonight on this Good Friday, I believe it's appropriate for us to reflect on what is good about this day. Let us not, however, mistake goodness for joy or celebration, because today is not a joyous day, nor does it call for celebration. Today is a day for us to remember and reflect on the goodness of Jesus and what he did so that we could experience abundant life. The passage from which I'll be offering tonight's sermon this evening has already been read for us, um, but I'm going to read it again so that it's fresh on our minds. The passage is Isaiah 53, 1 through 9, and I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Um, and for the sake of the reverence of the reading of God's word, and so you don't fall asleep this evening, um, would you stand out of reverence for the reading of God's word? Again, this is Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 9. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. 
we turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. This is the word of God given to us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You guys can take a seat. So, honestly, as a preacher, it's extremely difficult to stay away from a message of joy and hope and life because that's why I became a pastor in the first place. Um, Even when preaching passages that are difficult um, or complicated. Most preachers, at least the ones that I know, will find the hope in the passage and preach the hope, if even just a glimmer. But that won't be the case this evening. Tonight, though we reflect on the goodness of God and what Jesus did, we do so in a solemn way. This is hard a hard word to preach, but it is a good one. If you spent any significant amount of time in the book of Isaiah, um, from which I read, you know that the imagery and prophetic dialogue within it paint a picture that looks a lot like Jesus. There's certainly some debate about whether Isaiah is actually talking about Jesus, whether he has Jesus in mind as he speaks, because it's so many years prior to Jesus' birth, before he's even on earth as if somehow that diminishes its meaning as a depiction of what Christ endured. But that's precisely what makes a prophecy a prophecy. It's in hindsight that we hear Isaiah's words and say, that looks a lot like Jesus. All this to say, regardless of who Isaiah was speaking of, what we have here is a representation of Jesus' life particularly in his final days as he journeyed toward Calvary. Isaiah's words are a spitting image, if you will, of Jesus's experience. And that's where I want to spend much of this evening, um, is with Jesus's experience of suffering and shame. We heard the gospel narrative of Jesus's final hours before being killed The narrative starts with Judas leading the Roman soldiers and temple guards to Jesus and Jesus handing himself over to spare the lives of his disciples. And this was followed by Peter's denials and the high priest interrogating Jesus. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. 
Then Jesus is tried by Pilate, the governor at the time, who gave the people their choice of which prisoner they want released, wanted released. And not only that, but the crowd chose to sentence Jesus to death by crucifixion, even though Pilate could find no fault in him. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. And then following this death sentence, Jesus was tormented and made to carry his own cross, the very thing that would hold him up in humiliation to its place on a hill. And to humiliate him further, the soldiers who were guarding the cross rolled dice to win Jesus' clothes as some kind of souvenir. All of this was done without any objection from Jesus. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Sounds a lot like Jesus. Jesus' experience in those final hours is shrouded, not just with suffering, but with shame, with disgrace, and with humiliation. What began as a celebration of a new king on Palm Sunday, just days prior, became the humiliation and death of a blameless man. And for that, I ask why. So many who know this story and read it every year on Good Friday ask, why? Why did Jesus need to suffer? Why did God the Father allow his son to undergo this treachery? Why didn't Jesus just use his power to put an end to the torture? Why couldn't the people see that Jesus is, in fact, God's son? Why? 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 Asking these questions is good. It's good because we don't understand, and perhaps we never will until Jesus comes again, at least not fully. But to ask is to desire to know God more, and that is a good thing. While it's okay and good to seek to understand why Jesus suffered so much pain and suffered a humiliating death, I want to make an important observation. That first verse in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah asks this question. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? John Wesley, who is someone to whom we look for theological insight in our faith tradition, believed that in the end, this remarkable passage, Isaiah 53, is not merely meant to be understood, but, as verse 1 indicates, to be believed. We are to put our trust in this awesome revelation that assaults and astounds our understanding. What a wonder it is that the ultimate manifestation of God's power would come through the utter weakness of a suffering servant. The fact that Isaiah uses first-person plural language, he says we, it leads many to believe that Isaiah was speaking on behalf of all of Israel, all of God's people. Some even believe that because Isaiah was a prophet, that he's speaking to all humankind. Both of those are plausible. A prominent theme throughout Isaiah, though, 
particularly chapters 40 through 55, is the deliverance of God's people from captivity in Babylon. In Israel's memory, God's power was manifested through the display of military and political power as God delivered them from their enemies. God's saving, powerful arm is always present, but directly seen at several points in Israel's history. God's strong hand and outstretched arm, as remembered in Deuteronomy 26, got the Israelites across the Red Sea. On the other hand, God's saving power came in the form of a holy mystery of the first Passover lamb in Exodus 12. And then Isaiah 53 brings us this new revelation of that holy mystery, where God's mighty, bondage-breaking power is revealed precisely in and through an extraordinary manifestation of weakness, suffering, sacrifice, and death. Isaiah mentions of this servant in our passage that he was not beautiful or majestic or attractive. In ancient Israel, if you weren't beautiful or majestic or attractive, it was believed that God had not blessed you, that somehow you were not regarded as important or favored. Also in ancient Israel, if you suffered and bad things happened to you, it was believed that God was bringing wrath and punishment on you, that you somehow deserve what you are experiencing. We see this theology at work in Job, um, Job's story, when his friends insist that Job had done something wrong to deserve his hardship. They say, certainly you must have done something. I would venture to say that we today still treat suffering this way, as if somehow our suffering is the direct result of a choice we made, that God is somehow punishing us because of something we did, which might be true in some cases. And I have more to say on that in a minute. Well, Jesus has more to say on that in a minute. But for one more moment, I want us to return back to Isaiah and his friends. I'm not sure if they're friends or simply witnesses, um, but we're going to go back to that passage. You see, this passage isn't just remarkable in that it reveals to us a new way of considering God's power. It's remarkable and scandalous even in that Isaiah and his witnesses come to this astonishing realization. They suddenly understand why the servant suffers and they own it. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. You see, the servant Isaiah is speaking of suffers because we stood by and did nothing. Not because he deserves it and not because God was punishing him. Jesus suffered so that we could be whole, 
and healed and forgiven of the things that ought to earn us our death. That is good. The message of Good Friday is for everyone. Everyone needs to know the story of the one who saved them, right? But I think the message of Good Friday is for three groups of people in particular. Maybe not every year, but this one anyway. I said earlier that Jesus and I had more to say about the subject of God's punishment, and here it is. The Good Friday message is for anyone who believes that God takes delight in seeing suffering or that God causes suffering because God does not delight in suffering. Not the suffering of his son on the cross and not in your suffering, God's beloved child. And God does not cause suffering. In fact, God weeps and laments with those who suffer. Likewise, Jesus, God in flesh, weeps and laments with those who suffer. Jesus was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. Jesus is acquainted with your deepest grief, for he endured it and endures it with you now. So then, the message of Good Friday is also for those who suffer, those who are grieving and those who feel forsaken by God. Perhaps that is you tonight. Maybe you want to shout the words of Psalm 22 as Jesus did from the cross in Matthew's gospel. Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Finally, the message of Good Friday is for anyone who does not yet know the love God has for them. I'm going to call the priest team to come back up. We're going to sing in a little bit. Um, but Brent Peterson, a theologian, a former professor of mine, and the interim pastor here on several occasions, he writes this, Today is not good because Jesus was killed. It is good because the Son laid down his life by the Spirit as an act of love for God and the world. And in this way, God became the God of those who have been abandoned and forsaken by God. At this time, I thought it would be appropriate for us to spend some time in silent reflection and prayer. And so in the silence, as you reflect, in response to what you've heard and felt tonight, I want you to finish this sentence. Jesus. That's it. Tell Jesus what you're feeling, what you're thinking, what you're pondering. Perhaps you want to offer thanks for his sacrifice. It may end up being more than one sentence. I hope it does. Um, or maybe you just want to sit in the silence and soak it in. Um, so we're going to spend a few minutes in silent reflection.
Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It was the day of preparation, and the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath, and a very special Sabbath because it was Passover week. So they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering that their legs be broken. Then their bodies could be taken down. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear. And immediately blood and water flowed out. This report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. He speaks the truth so that you may also continue to believe. These things happen in fulfillment of the scriptures that say, not one of his bones will be broken, and also that they will look on the one they pierced. Afterward, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in a long sheet of linen cloth. The place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so, because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. <clears throat> 